in our everyday lives, we don't really think about it. But if you ask yourself a very simple question, or in fact, a pair of very simple questions, um, where does yesterday go? And where does tomorrow come from? Who's got their learning hats on today? So I've been a bit obsessed by the idea of time for quite some time. Sorry, and I have touched on it on the podcast before, but it's gone over my and many of your, apparently, heads. So I've been determined to find someone who could explain it in a really digestible and easy to understand way, as though I'm a child. That man is Colin Stewart, whose book, Time, 10 Things You Should Know, is out now in all the usual places. I devoured it in just a few days, which would seem like the blink of an eye to someone standing near a black hole. And he will explain why that is. Colin is a renowned astronomy author and speaker who has written a host of books for both adults and children about science. He is extremely versatile, equally able to give talks to amazed children at schools, as he is able to speak about innovation and business communication at conferences. If you're new to this science time stuff, then I urge you to stick with it because Colin does have that knack of explaining it all in ways that are not only accessible and understandable to us, but applicable to our daily lives. He talks really quite beautifully about how our lost loved ones are never truly gone, but out there, somewhere, in space-time. Of course, he'll explain what space-time is, but we do have to get used to understanding that space and time are one and the same thing. Space-time. If, on the other hand, you are quite knowledgeable about this stuff, I still urge you to listen on because I think Colin treads that line brilliantly between easily understandable stuff and out there complex bits and pieces. There was definitely some new stuff I didn't know about. He'll tell us about what black holes really are and what we think are inside them. By we, I certainly don't mean I have anything to do with it and you probably don't either, but science people. And we'll talk about how we can time travel to the future and potentially to the past in a way i mean one part i didn't actually get to ask about i didn't get time uh is wormholes Uh, but they do feature in his book which is in the show notes the link uh basically you can theoretically build a portal that rips through space to other parts of the universe and somehow you can use that to travel back in time if you wanted sort of um follow stuart on at skyponderer on twitter I'm on at andrewgold underscore OK across socials, and you can catch the video version of this podcast on YouTube. I'm trying to grow that, get some new subscribers on there, so do check that out on The Edge with Andrew Gold on YouTube. Uh, if you're new to this, subscribe as well, please. By the way, Stuart and I go on to talk for another 20 minutes in the bonus part, so sign up to that on patreon.com slash andrewgold or in the Apple VIP area on my Apple podcast thing. We talk in that discussion about everything from Friday night dinner to champagne socialists. So do check it out. But for now, here's Colin. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm really good, thanks. It's uh, getting busy again, which uh, I guess after the last 18 months or so is is a change in pace in the last last few weeks, I've got to say. Yeah, well, that's good. I didn't think about how COVID affects astronomers. Um, oh, also, I should say before, in case it happens, it might cut out again or something. I'm in between moving house and don't have Wi-Fi. So I've got, uh, it's on my phone, like tethered to the phone and those ones are never, sure. you yeah. never know. It's, oh, it's just, I hate life at the moment because you just don't, I don't have anything <laughs> how I want it. I just got this new chair. Look at that. You see that chair? 
Nice. Yeah, but it's uh, the head. The head's never high enough for tall people. Look at that. My head is. <laughs> I'm only six yeah, sort of half in, three. half out. Yeah, what's the? I don't understand. So I'm six foot three, which is not that tall, right? So that's got to be six two, six one, six foot five eleven, and even that you're pushing it. You have got to be about five eight. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know why they do that. Um, your book's great. I loved your book. I read it all in a few days because I was just, I love that stuff so much. And it's all stuff that I read and love. And then I forget straight after, which is why it's <laughs> great having you on now. Um, but yeah, I got loads of questions for you. I mean, firstly, I mean, why, why, how does one become an astronomer? Is it the romantic uh, childhood mm-hmm. looking up at the moon thing? Or is it the sort of more boring uh, school physics sort of stuff? I think it's in spite of the school physics stuff. So um, it, it is the boring looking up at the, the night sky. I've just been obsessed with it since I was a kid and then did the physics at, at kind of A-level. Physics at A-level is so dull that I almost just you know jacked it in. Um, but then I went to university and did, did uh, astrophysics. And then it's that classic thing of people get to university and realize that the life in, of an academic is a, is a really crummy one. So mm. what do you do instead? You know, if you love the subject, what are you, and you still want to you know, be involved in space somehow, what do you do if you don't want to be um, an academic? And that's kind of how I ended up forging this kind of yeah. So a- astrophysics—that's what that was the name of the degree. Uh, physics with astrophysics. Yeah, I was—I wanted no. to do straight astrophysics, but I was told, or sort of advised, not to you know, to keep my options open. Right, that kind of boring parental advice of if you keep it broader, <laughs> you might you might have yeah. more options. Um, I mean, it was sensible. It was sensible advice, but to be honest, I, I should have just done more astrophysics. Ah, uh, you love astrophysics. I, I found I did English, and I had the same thing of like, you know, what you're going to do after. I guess most degrees, are like, what are you going to do after that? I mean, what does one do if they're not then just teaching other people to do the thing that they did? They they become what an astronomer. What is an astronomer? Yes, yeah, so I guess most of my colleagues they either now um, at university they're either teachers, physics teachers. Um, they're research astronomers, so they're out there using telescopes to take observations and try and understand the universe. Um, or they're bankers, mm. ah. because the, the astrophysics involves lots of maths and lots of sort of complex modelling of things that the city quite like, uh, quite like astrophysicists. So that's where they they tend to be. Either that or medics. Actually, quite a few of, of people went into sort of medical physics, looking at you think about X rays and isotopes and. You know, all those kind of things you need in a hospital. Physicists also tend to end up there as well. The banking thing is is quite far from the dream of the sort of young child wanting to be an astronomer, isn't it? Did you ever get tempted to? I, I suppose it's almost selling out, isn't it? It is a little bit. Um, I just don't think it would have a very good life for me personally. I mean, I can totally see why you do it. You could go maybe do it for 10 years. And if you're earning six figures every, every year, you could do it for 10 years and then go and do something else. But... Uh, I think that very, I mean, personally, I don't do very well around um, like in a big group of blokey men. And I, and I appreciate that that's not, that it's not just the case now, um, but it was still a very sort of alpha male environment. And, uh, and I don't think I'd have been very good in that. Uh, yeah, in that blokey sense. bankers. They, but you need to know a bit about astronomy, though, as you were saying, but also because one of the things early on in your book that was fascinating to me was that the stock exchange spent millions on a tube that saves 0.0004 seconds to get their information a bit. Are they just sitting there just like waiting to push a button like super quickly? What's going on? 
I think it's just a faster cable, like a, a, a faster way to send information between the two hubs. So mm. it's completely automated. And these days, trades on the stock market are you know, kind of really made by a person. They're made by algorithms. And so if you can get that information between the two different um, trading hubs quicker, then the computers can make that decision faster and maybe save you a bit of money. So it was just a faster cable to send a, um, yeah, send the trading information between, I think, Chicago and New York. And it's so mad. And it, it, I, I want to know, so tell me what... What? Why do we call seconds seconds? Now, I guess I'm going to get get you to launch into quite a fairly complex but simple to understand explanation of what or how we measure time. Sure. Well, it comes from the first clocks. So uh, the clocks used to have hands, or well, still have hands, but they were called um, first minutes and second minutes. And so the we kind of shortened it now to minutes and seconds. And so mm-hmm. we had our hands on clocks. And then we invented the minute hand and then we invented the second hand, all because we were wanting kind of more and more fine degrees of time. So, yeah, they were called first minutes and second minutes. And, and so now we call them seconds. How do we decide what, how long a second and how long a minute is? Well, so a second is a pretty much the same as a heartbeat. That, that's why it's a good measure of time because you're kind of counting it in multiples of your heartbeat. Um, it used to be defined as a fraction of the day because the day is, is something physical. It's the spin of the Earth. So it takes one day for the Earth to spin, for the sun to return to the same place in the sky. So if mm. we then carve that up into smaller amounts, um, and so we carved it up into hours and then minutes and then seconds, but in such a way that a second would be roughly a, roughly a heartbeat. Could we have made the world have like 48 hours in one day and a minute could have like 120 seconds or something? Yeah, it's completely arbitrary. So the day... Um, the sort of length of the day is fixed because that's how long it takes the Earth to spin. But you can divide that up however you want. Um, after the French Revolution, they, they experimented for, um, I think, 12 years with decimal time. So they had 10 hours in a day and they had 100 minutes in an hour and 100 seconds in a minute. So, yeah, the choice of how to divide that time up is completely, um, completely mm. arbitrary. That seems better, doesn't it? It does kind of seem better. I guess the system we have now is a mix of lots of different things. So it seems really messy. Hmm. Um, it's probably based on your hands, actually. So if you look at your um, left hand, your four fingers have three sections per finger because your fingers are made of three bones. So you've got 12 sections there. Yeah. And then on this hand, you've got five digits. So you can use your thumb and count one to 12 on those sections of your left huh. hand yeah use your index finger you can go from 13 to 24 next middle finger you can go from 14 to and, and so on um and that adds up to 60 so that's why we have 60 minutes in an hour and 60 seconds wow. in a minute because you can count very easily yeah they were just doing it on their hands yeah and it particularly in this this kind of came from the melting pot of the middle east so sumeria and babylonia and you know if you've got lots of different cultures and lots of different languages you need a consistent way of showing people how much you want to pay for their sheep or goats or whatever. Uh, you could show them on your fingers without having to speak. We even have to speak. Man, so it's a sexagesimal so cool. system, that sort of space 60 system that we have for time. And we think it's probably based on our fingers. So I think you wrote that the first clock was in like 1680 or something. So what did people say if they wanted to just go like, okay, I'll meet you at the pub at this, you know, at when the sun looks like it's over there? Yeah, I mean, it was certainly the first clock with a minute hand on it. Before mm. that, you, you wouldn't have to have such, um, you know, smaller divisions of time. 
So every clock in the town centre would set their set their clock on the bell tower at noon every day, because the sun's at its highest at noon. So you'd set your clock in the local square, at mid, you know, rejig it to midday every day, and go from mm. there. So you could say, you know, I'm going to meet you. It's a lot more rough. You wouldn't say I have to meet you at twelve minutes, twelve minutes and forty five seconds past one. <laughs> you'd say, you'd no say I'd meet you, you know, roughly one o'clock or somewhere between one one o'clock and two o'clock, and maybe you'd hang around for half an hour and wait for them to turn up. I suppose before that, it would have been like a sundial or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, although that only works if the sun is if the sun's shining. Yes, which in the UK, I guess, is not not uh, not the best. <laughs> they wouldn't have just had known what time it was. Hey, what happened on September the third, seventeen fifty-two? Do you remember what happened that day around the world? This is where they, yeah, this is where they sliced ten days out of the calendar. Yeah. So the trouble is that the we talked about how the calendar is based on the Earth, and so you've got to keep it in the rhythm of the, what the Earth is doing if it's going to make any sense. So. The reason why we break time up into years is because it takes a year for the Earth to orbit the sun. But if your calendar isn't matched up with the Earth precisely, the two systems begin to drift apart. Mm. Because there are 365 and a quarter days in a year. That's the time it takes the Earth to go around the sun. But there are only 365 calendar days. Right. So the two systems are very close but they're not perfectly aligned. And over time, they can then drift apart. Hmm. We, do, we sort that out now. We have leap years, right? Yeah. But back in the past, that wasn't, that wasn't done that way. And so the two, the two systems got out of sync, and so they had to uh, resync them again by deleting 10 days from the calendar. So hmm. it became, um, it went from early September to mid-September overnight. I was trying to catch you out because the days didn't exist, did they? So that's why I was trying to be like, what happened on that day? And then you'd be like, oh. Oh, I, I did that once as a, um, <laughs> yeah, at school, we um, we had to write a quiz for a lesson. And yeah, I think I think I said that, that was my question, what happened, on, you know, what happened on that particular day. So yeah, that's part of the part of the time they sliced out the calendar. I love that. Um, tell me about, you know what? Okay, let's go. So where, what, is time as simple as what, I'm, what I've read in your book and I've heard a little bit before is this idea of like time is, is basically stuff going from, being very in like a state of harmony to being in a state of discord. Like, that doesn't sort of make sense in my head. I understand, so I guess, the idea of that. But what does that really... That, is that just a way of measuring... That isn't what time is. It's a way of measuring time or something. No, it's not what time is. It's why time has a direction. Hmm. So we always experience things in a certain order. If we, you know, Over our lives, things deteriorate, for example. If you leave something alone... Um, I was putting up some weeds in the garden earlier, right? If you leave things alone, things get messy. As we get older, our faces get more disorganized, right? We get yeah. wrinkles and blemishes and, you know, all sorts. Lose your hair, for example. And and that's something called entropy. It's, it's a measure of disorder. And so what we say is the reason why time has an arrow, why it seems to point from the past to the future, is because there's this deterioration over time. So it's not time itself. It's just why time flows kind of that way rather than the other way. But you'd find it odd if if something spontaneously got tidier. Or the classic example is if you drop a mug, it wouldn't suddenly reform or your coffee doesn't suddenly get warmer by itself. So this sort of disorder to, sorry, this order to disorder, it's not time itself, but it kind of helps to explain why time flows 
or seems to flow at least to us in a certain direction. Yeah, it still doesn't, no matter how many times I hear that, it, make, it doesn't make sense to me. I, I, I get, it's like, okay, the stuff happens and stuff becomes more like discordant and everywhere and, 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 but, and I know it couldn't go the other way just because you'd have to throw all the physical pieces together in such a way that it would be ridiculous. But presumably, I mean, that is possible. You can stick things together. Yeah, right? well, there's two options. One, it could happen naturally. So in the book, we talk about the fact that it's not, there's nothing special about the direction of time that we experience. It's just far more likely than the other way. So there is no reason why a mug couldn't spontaneously reform. There is no reason why the atoms in your coffee couldn't move around faster and then get hotter by themselves. Mm. That's possible. It's just very, very, very unlikely because there are so many other ways that they could move to become colder than they could to become hotter. So it's just a probability thing. But of all the different possibilities, it's skewed a lot more towards deterioration than it is to um, more order. And so the example we give is a, a, or I give in the book is a pack of cards. If you buy a pack of playing cards, brand new, they're all arranged in the pack beautifully in, in numerical and suit order. That's really ordered. If you shuffle them, then you could shuffle them back the way they were, you could shuffle them so they're all in the same order as before, but that's so unlikely. You're far more likely to mess up the order by shuffling them. So that's mm. kind of why we have this this direction. When things occur, it's just more likely for them to come for them to become messier than tidier. And so events to us seem to play out in a particular order, ordered to messy. Could there be like a being that that experiences it backwards, or is it just our experience of it going forward through the time? I don't think so because it would be it's still far more likely for it to happen. You'd have to somehow be able to it's a bit different if you if you put energy in, right? So you could say, well, hang on a minute, I could rather than just randomly shuffling the cards, I could deliberately painstakingly go through and put them back in order. And then there's no disorder increase, right? Hmm. But there is, because you've had to put energy in to do it. You know, you require energy to eat, to power your brain and your body and so on. So you've sort of made the universe more disordered as a whole by breaking down that food in order to to briefly realign the cards. So if you look at the system as a whole, then the disorder still um, st- still increases. Have you seen the film Arrival? I have, yeah. Do you like it? I'm trying to remember what, what the... She, she learns the alien language... So it's the it's the one language when they stick their hands on the on the glass and stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to I'm trying to remember. I'm really bad at remembering films in terms of what's the what's the time, what's the time angle. It was the Sapir Whorf, I think that's what it's called. The theory that learning other languages can change uh, how I should check that actually because there'll be people screaming, going, "It's not Sapir Whorf." <laughs> uh, Sapir Whorf is that what it is? Uh, hypothesis. Uh, that the structure of language determines a native speaker's perception and categorization of experience. So I guess on a, on a small level, it's this thing of like, you know, if you have masculine or feminine words, does that mean that you can, uh, you would see a bridge in French as masculine or in German, it would be feminine and the poets would describe it as such. In the film, she learns the, it's a spoiler, but if you haven't seen it by now, then people aren't going to see it. Um, she learns the alien language and and can then experience time the way they do, which is sort of this all-encompassing, sort of, they, it's all at once for them. Well, that makes sense. I mean, I think that that's more to do with potentially with the way that we 
kind of perceive time as opposed to the way that time fundamentally is in the universe. So we all ha we all have the expression right, time flies when we're having fun. When you're bored, time seems to run more a lot more slowly than when you're doing something enjoyable. Mm. So there's this kind of difference between our human perception of time, our experience of time, and the sort of objective fundamental way that that time is working on a base level. So maybe that's what it, what it's to do with the way that they experience time. But there's a lot in that everything happens all at once because mm. we can kind of get onto the fact that our best theories of physics tell us that actually the, the past, the present and the future all coexist. I, I don't want to say at the same time because that's not <laughs> right, but you know what I mean? They, they're, they're all coexisting. So I, I love that. I just want to, I think that's my favorite thing I've ever heard about time and stuff. And I think some people might find it depressing or I don't even know uh, because of what it implies about determinism and free will. Um, but the idea that, you know, loved ones that we've lost are still out there in space time is quite beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, I really like it. And it's something that I've sort of come, the realization I've come, come to a bit, a bit late, I suppose. I spent a lot of my teens going against the idea of fate and of, of an afterlife and of, you know, of that sort of stuff. And I've, not that I believe in those things now, but this, looking at time in this way, it sort of brought me back into this. Uh, thinking about it differently again and and really it's no one no one thinks about time in our everyday lives we don't really think about it but if you ask yourself a very simple question or in fact a pair of very simple questions um where does yesterday go and where does tomorrow come from then once you start logicking that through you start to realize that hang on a minute it doesn't yesterday can't go anywhere and tomorrow can't come from anywhere. They must already exist. Because we realize that actually space and time, as different as they seem in our, in our everyday lives, they're actually the same, or at least part of the same thing. And the Big Bang created all of the space and time in the universe. And so there is no process that is removing this space-time from the universe. And there is no process that is making more of it. So every all of space and time at least in our universe, is coexisting. And so this is what you're saying about the loved ones. Einstein's best friend, uh, the two of them died very close together. And um, Einstein died second. And one of the last letters he ever wrote to his best friend's widow had this kind of notion of reassuring her that actually in, in a very real way, her husband was still in existence somewhere it's just she's not sharing that part of the universe with him anymore. Um, and so in, in the dedication to the book, it's the first book I could dedicate to my son, who's under just, he's nearly one. And so the dedication is, you know, how nice to have finally reached the part of space-time with you in it. Because yeah. he's, already, he's always existed, if this theory is right, in a region of space-time. It's just him and I have never shared the same space-time before. And I finally got to the point in my life where I, I'm now in the same piece of space time that he is. So under that situation, there is, it is fate, right? I, I never believed in fate. I used to like, anyone who believed in fate, I thought was a bit daft. But actually this kind of tells you that fate is kind of real in the sense that what, what happens always would have happened. So I didn't mention it in the book, but I've come up with an analogy since that. I think life's a bit like an advent calendar 
Like you, you wake up every day and you open the door and you see what's behind the door. But you have no control over what's behind the door. Right? That was predetermined in the factory when the advent calendar was, was made. It's just you're, you're revealing the doors one day at a time. Um, and you can't, at least in our everyday experience, race ahead and open doors that are, that are not the date you're on. So it's strange. I've had an about turn about fate, I think, in, in a sort of on a philosophical level. And that's what I love about time. You can start pulling at these threads and suddenly you're not talking about clocks. You're talking about fate and determinism and free will and basically the base, some of the base questions of our existence. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, there's fate and there's fate, isn't there? And I think you, you, you're saying you didn't believe in fate as much, like in serendipity uh, romantic movies where it's like I've met the person I'm supposed to be with uh, and I suppose the fate that you're talking about as a scientist doesn't have any supposed to in a romantic sense it's just that's what happens but also it's what was always going to happen that's the thing because the future is predetermined so if you if you do meet someone and marry them then you were always going to do that and whatever you did in your 
childhood, that point in the future was fixed. That wedding day, for example, was a fixed point and nothing you could have done changed it. And so I'd like to, it dawned on me when I was about 20 that if I was going to get married one day, I didn't know if I was, right? But if I was going to get married one day, which I am now. um, Congrats. That my wife is out there somewhere, right? And that she's doing something now. And what, you know, sort of, what what is that person up to at this point? Um, it turns out weirdly, I knew the person at twenty, even though we weren't together. But uh, mm-hmm. you, you know, even if you're, you're say like I don't know, eighteen, nineteen now, and you and you end up getting married one day, your future spouse is out there. Yeah, and who that is is if again, if this theory is true, um, who that person is 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 already predetermined. You just got to be patient and wait to see who it see who it is. Well, you might still end up alone. Oh yeah, you might not get married at all. My dad got married four times. He's had four fates. But that order was always fixed as well. Like, yeah, but it doesn't sound as romantic now, does it? No. <laughs> so it's not necessarily the one. It's just whatever. But it also means like your death date is fixed, right? Oh, God. And it's happening right now, but somewhere. But not now, but it's happening in space. Well, this is now. the thing. You, this is why it gets tricky when you try and use these words, right? Because it's not happening right yeah. now. But no. it is happening in another region of, in another region of, of space-time somewhere. Yeah, and this is this is why it's tricky sometimes to talk about uh, science stuff on the podcast because there's you know a lot of people listen and some people will be well ahead of this uh, and getting you know they'll and they'll sort of want to be like, all right get on with it guys we get this and then other people might be totally new to the whole concept that space and time are part of the same thing so I guess we should go sort of talk about that that was the Einstein stuff you were you were talking about right yeah so in our everyday experience space and time seem very different things. So we talked about how in time there seems to be a, a one-way direction. In space, your direction is a lot more free, right? So you can walk around. You can go left to right, up and down, back to front. You can stop. You can turn around. You can go back the way you came. You can change the speed at which you travel through uh, space because you can walk or get on a bus or a rocket or whatever you want. So you've got a lot of options in space. Whereas in time, you don't seem to have a lot of options. You're going forwards and only forwards and you can't change the the rate at which you're doing that. So we always consider space and time to be different. But then just over 100 years ago, we started to realize that they were very closely related. So Einstein came up with his special theory of relativity, published it in 1905. And a couple of years later, one of his old maths teachers used Einstein's work to say that actually space and time are linked into this fabric called space-time. That was Hermann Minkowski, and these two men didn't really get on very well. Hmm. Um, Minkowski once called Einstein a lazy dog who never bothered with mathematics at all. Yeah. So they had a bit of a fracturous relationship, <laughs> but yeah. they sort of they riffed off each other in a professional way. And then Einstein ran with that idea of space-time, sort of took the baton, and then realized that actually gravity is a result of, of this space-time, which is like a, a fabric being being curved or warped. The classic example, right? Imagine a bed sheet and you hold it tightly at the four corners. That sheet is what we call space-time, right? It's, it's space and time wrapped up into one thing. If we then to put a bowling ball in the middle of the bed sheet, it would start to sag in the middle. And if you took a tennis ball and you were to roll that tennis ball around the, the rim of the dip, you could make the tennis ball orbit the bowling ball, just like the Earth orbits the sun. But there is no pulling going on. Like the classic thing we're taught at school, 
is that the sun pulls on the earth. The gravity of the sun pulls on the earth. And that is why we're going around the sun. It sure looks that way. But in the case of the bowling ball and the tennis ball, there's no pulling going on. The bowling ball isn't pulling the tennis ball. What the bowling ball is doing is curving space, changing the shape of the sheet. And the tennis ball is just following that shape that it makes. So that was the distinction. That was the jump from a, a kind of Newtonian pull to an Einsteinian, actually gravity is just what we see when space is curved. And that's why when we approach something that has loads of gravity, I'm going to get on to the next film, which is Interstellar, they go around a black hole or they go near to a black hole. So I guess that that sheet at that point, and obviously, I mean, it must be, it's like an infinite amount of sheets, isn't it? It's like a 3D sheet and it's impossible for us to imagine, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, four, it's a, it's a four-dimensional sheet because you've right. got your three dimensions of space, like your classic three dimensions of a cube, say, and then you've got time as well as a fourth mm. dimension. So yeah, it's an imperfect analogy to the bed sheet because it's it's got the wrong number of dimensions. But then a three-dimensional brain cannot picture a four-dimensional sheet. Yeah, that does my so head we, in. It just It's not you. You just can't do it. It's uh, just not... We don't have the hardware to do it. Annoys me that we can't. It doesn't, it doesn't pay to. If you think about why your brain works the way that it does, it's to make sure that you have lots of sex, eat lots of food, live a long time. Right? So that you survive, pass your genes on. That's what your brain is built to do, right? That's what evolution has selected your brain to do. It doesn't really pay to think in four dimensions. That won't stop you being eaten by a tiger and that won't find you more food or or, or uh, a better mate. In fact, it probably definitely won't find you a better mate, right? <laughs> so no. that's why our, our monkey brains can't think in four dimensions. But it's, it's still, that's the way to think about it, is it's, it's a, a fabric that gets warped and then you're right, in Interstellar, they go and visit a black hole, or at least a planet next to a black hole. And because the space-time around them is so warped because of the black hole, time is warped too. So if you're warping the sheet, you're warping space and you're warping time. And so time runs more slowly um, in warped space compared to non-warped space. I should say, by the way, that it's not that your time runs more slowly for you. It's not like you would experience t a life in slow motion. You know, you wouldn't hear somebody talking and their voice would be like stretched out into a long sentence. For you, everything's happening just the way it always has. It's just your time is actually running faster compared to somebody else. And in the case of Interstellar, the people left behind on the Earth. So then when you go back, then you notice the difference. Because you're then comparing what's happened to you to what's happened to somebody else. Which is why it's called relativity, right? It's what's happened to you relative to somebody else. Oh, I'd never realised why it was called that. Yeah, if you never go home, if you never go back to the Earth, you'll never know that anything different happened. Because for you, life has seemed perfectly reasonable. It's only that comparison with somebody else doing something different that shows up this... Discord, which sometimes can be really great. So I don't want to spoil the movie too much, but there's a, yeah, there's a shifting <laughs> of the generations because people are aging at different rates sure. than would be traditional. Let's put it that way. Without giving yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's say somebody becomes older than their somebody or something without, that's no spoiler. That's okay, isn't it? Um, yeah. The normal <laughs> order of things is, is thrown into chaos. Yeah. Man. So, you know what? So that's the way that we can go forward in time, right? It's one of the very, very few 
ways that we can time travel theoretically. Well, practically. Mm. Well, there so was the, it's it, been wormhole was the other way, wasn't it? Well, so these are the two ways. There are two ways to go forwards. We think. Well, we're already going forwards, but there are two ways to go forwards quicker. So, time travel to the future is about putting on the fast forward button. You know, I was saying about the advent calendar. You can open one day at a time. What if you could open them more quickly? So, either you go close to something very heavy like a black hole, and then when you come back to the Earth, less time will have passed for you than the people left behind. So you might be, say, 10 years older, but on the Earth, 100 years may have passed. So you've skipped 90 years into the future. I mean, to be honest, going, going near a black hole is, is, is very dangerous. It's not the best way to do it. I would say the better way to do it is just travel very quickly. Now, the analogy I always use for this is, is imagine running a 100-meter race with Usain Bolt. If he got to the finishing line before you, you would, wouldn't be surprised, right? No. Because he can run through space faster than you. But if I told you that he gets to the future faster than you by winning the race, then you suddenly look at me like I'm a crazy person. But he does. He beats you to tomorrow as well as to the finishing line because you're both running through space-time, not just space. Now, for him, the difference is minuscule. But if you can go faster, remember, it's relativity, right? So it's always the difference between the slow person and the fast person. The bigger the difference you can make it, the more noticeable the time travel. So our record holder is Gennady Podolka. He's a Russian cosmonaut. He holds the record for the most amount of time orbiting the Earth, uh, 800 and something days. Not in one go, over several missions. Mm. But during that time, he was traveling at 17,500 miles an hour around the Earth. So when, when he came back to the Earth, he is a 40th of a second younger than he otherwise would have been had he not gone to space. Another, another way of saying that is he's traveled a 40th of a second into the future. Now, you might go, well, who cares, right? What, what difference does a 40th of a second make? It doesn't. But what should be incredible is that it's not zero. Because if you want to make it more, if you want to make it a week or a month or a year or a thousand years, you just go faster. The faster you go, the bigger the difference becomes. So you can work out a way to do it where, where you are 10 years older. So if you've got a big loop and a rocket around space for 10 years and you come back to the Earth, you'll be 10 years older than you are now. 7,000 years will have passed on the Earth. So suddenly you're, right, I'm 35 I'd be 45 and it would be the year 9,000 on the Earth. So that, that is a case where if you could, and I, I know you can't, but if you could like do a Zoom call with them when they're off that far away, then their voice would probably sound really slow, right? I guess, the yeah, the issue you've got is that it would then take time for, um, for the signal to travel. But yes, you would see, you would each see each other's time. Would I sound really, I'd sound really fast. To the person who's going really, the person who's going really fast would hear me go. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, this is this is the thing that I always try. I'm trying to, to be careful because I don't want to get it. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's okay. You can think for a second, and I'll edit out the thinking time and just put. Yeah, the this is the ah. Uh, just trying to work out which way round it goes because it's. I know. I'm trying to think about that. I mean, you you probably have. A, I might just leave you to it. It's more. It's more complicated than 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 it seems, and I don't want to. 
It's a weird one, isn't it? Because I often think about it, like if somebody is going off, let's say somebody is exploring like Christopher Columbus of the of the galaxies one day, you know, not only would there be the the impossible situation of okay, so how is he going to communicate or, or is she going to communicate with the Earth? from so far away but also at the speeds and stuff they're going and maybe different gravity and whatever i mean can you do it to mars if somebody's on mars can you just have a chat with them so you can but there's a delay and the delay is about 20 minutes and that's not a um each way and that's not some technological hurdle that's the fact that it the speed of light is the fastest you can go and it takes 20 minutes for a signal to get from mars to the earth so um I give a Mars talk for schools and we, and we talk about this actually, that you know, psychologically it'd be very difficult because if you, you miss home and you want to have a, let's say, a call with your friends and family, you say hello, it'll take 40 minutes for the hello to come back from the other end. So you can never have a kind of immediate real-time conversation. There's always a, a delay. So maybe what you would do is pre-record something. You know, you'd have a video message, pre-record it, send it in one go, someone else would then send it back to you. But there's no way you can, even on Mars, and that's a, that's our second closest planet, that you could have a real-time conversation. Are audio signals like, approaching the speed of light or anything like that? They, they, they'll travel at the speed of light because they'll wow. be sent back. They'll be sent back using radio waves and radio waves travel at the speed of light. Wow, so that's cool. They'll go at the speed of light, but they can't go faster than the speed of light. And that's the... That's the inherent problem. Is that definitely not something that like in 10 years, someone will be like, you know what? You, something can go faster than the speed of light. Well, okay. So there are some exceptions to the rule. Hmm. So the official rule is nothing can travel through space faster than the speed of light. So space itself can stretch faster than the speed of light. And we think it did at the beginning of the universe. So that doesn't break the rules. And the rule also is you cannot travel faster than the speed of light if you were ever traveling slower than the speed of light. So what I'm saying is you can't accelerate up and go beyond the speed of light. But if there was something that had always been traveling at faster than the speed of light, and therefore it never had to cross that boundary, that might be possible. So that would be a particle called a tachyon. Uh, It's a hypothetical subatomic particle. We, We don't know if they exist. But that wouldn't break the rules because it you're not accelerating beyond it. You've always been traveling faster than the speed of light. Right. So we'll just build spaceships um, we're out of tachyons and then out be of tachyons, fine. maybe. But but if those <laughs> rules ever change, if we do realize that something can accelerate from slower than the speed of light to faster, um, that is a major shift in our thinking because actually that speed of light underpins yeah. so much of this well, relativity and so much of the stuff we've been talking about time. So maybe that will go. But if it does, it's like pulling the foundations out under pretty much everything we understand about. Okay. About not just time, but but about the universe. It's not going to happen, is it? Probably. Well, they thought a couple of years ago, there was a, an experiment that was sending particles between CERN and um, a detector underneath an Italian mountain. And the particles seemed to be arriving at the destination, as if they had travelled faster than the speed of light, and so everyone was very excited and thinking, you know, "Have we just had this cornerstone shift in our understanding?" But the answer is always no. The answer is always something really boring, and I think it turned out that there was a, um, a sort of problem with one of the wires plugged in in a particular place that was given oh. the wrong um, 
was given the wrong signal. So this is kind of when people talk about conspiracy theories and so on. And I always say the, the universe isn't that interesting. Like I wish the universe was that interesting, right? But the answer always turns out to be something exceptionally boring, yeah. like a wire. Or That's a shame. Do you think we'll ever have some sort of technology to explore the universe? Would it be through something like a wormhole? Well, so if we want to send people, you, you mean... I guess so. I, d- I remember hearing about that Stephen Hawking thing about light with cameras or something. Uh, what was it? Lasers with cameras yeah. going to... so this is one option, and it's not completely crazy that we could do it in the next century, um, would be to send, basically, effectively, 100,000 iPhones, or the equivalent of an iPhone, to the ne- next solar system, and you'd propel them using lasers. And the idea is that most of them would never get there. They would hit something or they would not be propelled properly or whatever, but you send a hundred thousand so that maybe one or two make it. And you could, you could get to the next solar system in about, uh, um, about 40 years. So that would be within one scientist's lifetime. You know, if you launched it as a grad student, when you were in your twenties, you'd get the, and the photographs would take four years to come back. So you'd actually have a photograph of the, another solar system within 44 years. But there's a massive difference between sending an iPhone and sending a human, just in terms of the the energy required. You're a lot heavier for starters. Um, you need food, oxygen, water, you know, all of those other things that an iPhone doesn't. doesn't yeah, need. and to come back. So in terms of us physically going to another solar system, uh, not soon. One day. You'd have to travel, maybe one day. I mean, you'd have to travel a significant fraction of the speed of light to do it. Which isn't impossible. It's just it requires. I think I, I think I read once that that it would take. It would take the entire energy consumption of the world for one year to send a human to the next. So you think about it, all the energy consumed all over the world every year, for just sending, yeah, an interstellar mission. It's quite. It's quite and when they came back, okay, okay, so it would be like eighty years and a lot more time would have passed on Earth. It depends how fast you go. So the, the annoying thing about this time dilation, which is what this effect is called, I was saying the faster you go, the difference in time. It's it's stacked massively towards the back end of the um, speed of light. So the the faster you go, the more and more it kicks in. So it doesn't kick in in, in, in a meaningful way, you know, in a way that you and I would find interesting um, until you're approaching, let's say, 80, 90, maybe even like 95% the speed of light. So it is there at 10% the speed of light, but it it's, it's, it's exponential growth, right? So it's if you're doubling something every time, doubling from one to two isn't very impressive, but doubling from a million to two million suddenly is sure, sure. a lot more of a game changer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What is a what is a black hole? Uh, how does it form and stuff? And, and then the other thing I want to know about them is because you was, you said that a lot of people think you wrote that a lot of people think that time might stop at the center of it, and and I want to know what that actually. Obviously, you couldn't go into one because you'd be spaghettified or whatever. But what what would what does that mean? Time stopping, even theoretically. So a black hole is something you get when a big star dies. 
Um, and by big, I mean about 30 times heavier than the sun. So it explodes at the end of its life. The core of the star collapses um, and basically rips a hole in a hole in space-time, or at least curves space-time to make... Like imagine the bowling ball in the sheet, but it's so deep that it's impossible to clamber out of. Okay. So if, you, if you were to slide into that depression, there is absolutely no way you can clamber out. Um, officially, you'd have to go faster than the speed of light to do it, which is, right. as we've established, we think impossible. So that's how black hole forms. In terms of what happens at the bottom, um, space-time becomes so curved at the very bottom that we think time ceases to exist at all. So that space-time is, is curved right into a, into a dot, an infinitely small dot. Um, and so there is no, effectively there is no space-time at that point. It's all condensed into a speck. So space ceases to exist and time ceases to exist at that mm. at that point. Yeah. Well, so if um, you we were call there it a sing- like- we call it a- oh yeah. So I was just gonna say if you were there for one second and then came out, which obviously you couldn't do, but if you did that, then with the whole universe, that everything would have just passed like billions and billions of years. Yes, if you were at the singularity, well, time wouldn't exist for you. Time would cease to exist for you if you were if you were part of the singularity. Um, but the big but is, I don't think a singularity is really what's at the bottom of a black hole. So. General relativity, which is Einstein's theory, it tells us a singularity is down there. And to be honest, general relativity has passed every test that's ever been thrown in it. But it's such a great theory for the very big when you're describing black holes and the sun's gravity and planets. If you want to describe really small stuff, like subatomic particles, we don't use relativity. We use quantum physics. And now normally these two theories, like landmark theories, you don't need to use both of them. You need to use either one of them. If it's small, it's quantum physics. If it's big, it's relativity. A black hole is a very weird thing because it starts off the size of a star. So you need relativity. But as it collapses to form the black hole, it ends up as a speck smaller than an atom. So you need the quantum physics too. You need both theories to describe what's really going on. And right now, we've tried and tried and tried to combine these two into one theory. Doesn't work. Can't find, we can't find that elusive, we call it theory of everything that would, would describe the very small and the very big. Um, and if we do find one one day, I think that theory would then replace the singularity with well, we can't say what, right? But whatever the theory tells us is there instead. So I always describe a singularity as a um, a placeholder for our ignorance. I don't think that's what's really going on. I can't tell you what is because we don't have the quantum quantum. Yeah, I thought you were going there. to before when you were like, I don't think it's a singularity. I thought, oh, here we go. He's going to tell us what's in the middle. Oh, if, I, I'd be I'd be a Nobel Prize winner <laughs> if I had the answer. Yeah, oh, um, one day. But that's one day. Yeah. So I don't think time really does stop at the bottom of a black hole. I mm. think we'll find out what really happens to time. Man, I want to send stuff in. Well, this is the issue, right? Whatever you send in, nothing can escape the black hole, even a radio signal. So if you were to send in some kind of spacecraft, even if the spacecraft could survive and take a photograph, the point about a black hole is that the space-time is so curved, so warped, that all possible paths that take you would take you out of the black hole are actually curved back in again. 
Is that a flaw in so, the movie Interstellar? Because isn't he in a black hole at the end and he's finally able to get all the data and to send it back to Earth? I think he might be in a wormhole at the end rather than yeah, maybe black hole, which is something slightly slightly different. We were talking about the quantum gravity though. Um, mm, sorry, yeah. That has, that, that has the worse problem of not only would it mean that maybe time doesn't stop at the black, bottom of a black hole, it might mean that time doesn't even exist. So there's a famous equation in physics called the Wheeler-DeWitt equation uh, after two physicists. And it's a possible equation that describes this quantum gravity. It doesn't mention time. There is no time in the equation anywhere. So if it's the right equation, um, and that is a big if, what it's actually saying is that the most fundamental level, at the deepest level of the universe, there is no time. That time is actually something that we like a useful illusion that we experience to make, to make sense of the world around us, but actually at the, at the most fundamental level, there is no time. So getting rid of a singularity isn't necessarily a good thing, right? It opens, it might open a whole, a whole deeper, more uh, yeah. scary can of worms. Can of wormholes. Do you know who Dr. <laughs> Julian Barber is? Uh, yes, I do. He came on, on this show a while ago, but I mean, it was, it was difficult because he, um, I, he doesn't speak in very layperson terms. It's like he's all in on the... Uh, yeah, and he's he's like... I've read a couple of his books and he's very... I mean, he's one of the people I think he's thought more about time than probably anyone else. <laughs> but I think... Uh, not in a negative way, but he's so far into that like time rabbit hole. Um, and, and the things he's talking about are so abstract. You know, I, I have a hard enough talking, time talking about it um, in, in a way that's even remotely a way that you might better picture. So the, way, where the level he is at, then I can, I can totally understand why. Yeah, he was, he was suggesting that time goes backwards until the Big Bang and then it goes out the other side or something nuts. Yeah, so Roger Penrose, who's a longtime collaborator of Stephen Hawking, um, just won the Nobel Prize, actually, um, for Black Holes. Uh, I think he's got a very similar idea as well. We're starting to realise that in the past, we thought that the Big Bang was the beginning of time, that it marked uh, um, time zero, because you get a singularity at the Big Bang too, right? It's the same, that infinite speck at the bottom of a black hole is the same thing we get at the beginning of the universe. But we're starting to realise that a singularity probably isn't what the real answer is. And so that begins to open the possibility that actually the Big Bang wasn't the beginning of, of time that it was the beginning of time in our universe, but maybe there was something before the Big Bang. And then you're into the sort of things that Barbara and, and um, uh, Roger Penrose are talking about, because you can say, well, there was a transition at that point between, say, the time running one way and time running the other. Man. So yeah, getting rid of that singularity kind of opens the door to talking about before the Big Bang. And that's what they're, I guess what they're looking at is that what changed at that point. Were there many Big Bangs? Are there like all like, like loads of universes that have popped up? This seems to be the way we're going. Um, so if you look at what caused the Big Bang, or at least cause is a strong word, right? Because cause is a timey word. But mm. what happened at the Big Bang, should we say, then it does seem that it's hard to get it to happen once. So it does seem more likely that um, there was more than one Big Bang, more than one universe. So the Big Bang theory has been around since 19... 19- well, 1920s, really. 
about 1980, we started to realize that it wasn't perfect and that it needed adjusting and fixing for um, several reasons. Not overhauling, just tweaking. But that tweaking um, has then opened the door to this idea that actually maybe it's not a one-time only hmm. event, that it's that's happened many times over. And, th- and then you have got um, multiple universes. Would they have like us in them? Well, so if there's an infinite number of other universes, which the theory says that's what we're talking about, then yes, there'd be copies of you, guaranteed to be copies of you. Um, let's go back to another, we talked about cards earlier, let's talk about dice instead. So let's imagine that you have six dice and you roll them 10,000 times. You are going to get duplicates of what you see on the dice, right? So you might get all ones. And then on the 5,000th roll, you might get six ones again because there are only a finite number of ways to arrange dice. So the more times you roll them, the more times the same pattern crops up. So each new universe would be like rolling the dice another time. And so eventually you're going to get another universe where you get the equivalent of six ones, which is all the atoms in that universe arranged in the same way as the atoms are in this universe. So that's copies of you, exact copies of you, having this exact conversation with me in exactly the same way, with exactly the same words. But then also weird tweaks where you have a universe where everything is copied almost exactly, but not quite. Yeah. So you might have two heads, three legs, hmm. a beak. That's quite a big like, change. Um, webbed fingers, uh, wings. Uh, well, it might just be that you have three, you know, three eyes or one eye in the middle of your face. Or... So basically the, the, the infinite multiverse, which is what this is, basically everything that is possible is guaranteed. Mm. I feel like that's a theory and it can't possibly actually be... Because, again, my head just can't get around that. And I, I know it's a hard theory to get my head around and I can't... Like, well, one of the people who came up with this theory, so the fix to the Big Bang that I was telling you about, the tweak, is called inflation. It's the idea that, that at the beginning, the expansion of the universe was a lot quicker than it is than it was after that. And, and one of the originators of that theory is Paul Steinhardt. And he's done a massive about turn since. And he, he now says it's nonsense. And it, you know, it's untestable and it's, it's like religion and it's not, you know, it's not possibly, uh, not possibly true. And he was the guy, the guy who jointly came out with it in the first place. So, um, it is possible to test whether there was a period of inflation at the beginning of our universe. But then there is that sort of logical jump then to say, well, if it happened here, then it must have happened multiple times over. That's the hard thing to test. That's the bit that's a bit more right. like faith. I mean, we don't even know if there's any life out there. I mean, I know people are now sort of suggesting there, def- there probably is, right? I've even heard Professor Brian Cox at one point saying he's not sure that there's any complex life, at least in our in our whatever. Yeah, you know? I think that's the, that's the difference. So if you think about all the things that had to go right for us to be here, not only does the earth have to be there in the first place with the right conditions and so on, you have to get the first life forms. We have no idea how that first happened. We know it happened quickly after the earth was formed, but we don't know why, you know, what caused it to happen. And then all the steps to go from single cell, multi-cell, all the way up to sentient things. Um, it seems unlikely. You know, imagine if the dino- if the uh, um, dinosaur asteroid had wiped out all life on earth rather than just the dinosaurs. There's so many things that could have gone wrong along the way before we ended up at us that, yes, I would imagine that life is pretty common in the universe in a very 
simple sludgy bacteria microby kind of a way but yeah i think i tend i tend to agree with brian that, that life forms like us are out there i would say but they're few and far between and therefore our chances of actually ever encountering them are uh, vanishingly small man it's so frustrating so are we alone in the universe no will we ever find out that's definitely true no it's the <laughs> It's the space is just space is just so big. That's the trouble we've got. That even if even if say there are, um, I think most people would agree that there's probably only a handful of civilizations in our galaxy at most. You know, we're talking maybe two or three, something like that, as a maximum. You know, our galaxy is a hundred thousand light years wide, where a light year is 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 um, ten trillion kilometers. So if you've got three civilizations spread out across all that space the chances you ever hearing from each other or encountering each other each, uh, each other are very very slim and then there are two trillion galaxies in the universe so you could have you know five six trillion civilizations in the universe but they're so far apart from each other that there's just very little chance of them mm. interacting i hate that it really annoys me because it's i just want to I want to see. It's it's part of the reason I don't want to die as well. Like I don't, I don't. I guess it's fear of missing out, and it really annoys me that. I guess I'd be okay, and this is horrible actually. I, I feel like I'd be okay with dying when I'm like ninety or something, if if like nothing else fun happens the next day. <laughs> it really annoys me that stuff's going on and I'm missing it, and that's the same for the whole universe. There's there must be some crazy stuff out there. Oh, all sorts of things. You know, there are that in, in some in some ways our planet is is fairly dull, right? There are there, we know there are planets out there that have two suns, for example, not one. So every morning you have two sunrises, and every evening you have two sunsets. You have two shadows as you walk around on the land. The, the, the two stars eclipse each other um, probably every three weeks or so. So you get a solar eclipse between two stars every three weeks. I mean, that makes our planet seem pretty dull in comparison. Right? They'd be bored of it, though. They'd be used to it. You would. You would. I guess you, you anchor with whatever you're used to, right? But Yeah. There's like cl- uh, planets with... Where like it rains diamonds, aren't there? We think so. Yeah. So diamond is just compressed carbon. So if you have somewhere with very, very extreme pressures, then um, there was a planet. We, there is a planet called Fifty Five Cancri E, um, <laughs> which we thought had um, a diamond core, and that therefore diamonds might make it up to the surface in the same way. Um, you know, things in the Earth make it up. But there's been a bit of it's sort of based on modelling, right? And there's been a bit of an about face on that. I think in the last couple of years, so it's a bit bit more doubtful but even in, in somewhere like saturn for example the, the the carbon we think gets compressed into um into diamonds it might even rain diamonds on saturn in its in its sort of inner atmosphere someone will be mining those one day but then they'll maybe lose a bit of value but i guess it's the trouble with asteroid mining well mining in general in space is that if you flood the market with something that's rare it's no longer rare so you've got to be you've got to be careful about how you do it but uh, no i would totally imagine particularly with the moon that we'd be mining the moon. There's some things on the moon that we really need, like um, helium-3, for example, which is a rare form of helium that we could use for fusion power stations on the Earth. That's so cool. I, you know, I can totally see us mining the mining the moon and bringing stuff back. There's a new telescope sort of being made, isn't there? And is it the James Webb or something in November or something like that? What's that? That's James Webb. Oh, that's a so, model of it. 
the other model. Yeah, I'm working at primary school Lovely. on Thursday, um, <laughs> doing science workshops. And uh, the That's workshop cool. this week is about looking for alien life. And so we're going to build build a model of the James Webb. And so I had to build it myself just so I knew how to make it. So yeah, this is the James Webb um, space telescope. Except this uh, sun shield is the size of a tennis court. Should we be excited? Because again, another disappointing thing in, in your book, which was not disappointing, but another disappointing fact was like how large a telescope would have to be to be able to see really, really far. And this one, what? so you, what? The, the one part's as big as a tennis how I mean, it's quite big, isn't it? But it's nowhere near big enough to see that much stuff, is it? Well, so weirdly, it sees back in time. It sees back in time a long way, so it can see back. The, one of the reasons it's built is that it can see back to the, almost the very beginning of the universe. So the very first galaxies that sprang up, maybe a hundred million years after the Big Bang, maybe hundreds of millions of years after the Big Bang, the light that they gave out at the time because the universe is expanding, it's been stretched so much since that it's no longer visible. It's been stretched and it's now in the infrared rather than the visible. So James Webb is an um, infrared telescope and it will see the first light from the first galaxies. So it can see something way back in time, but that's because a galaxy is absolutely massive. Whereas if you're talking about what we, what we talked about in the book was because it takes time for light to get places, you're always seeing the past. So if there was an alien looking at the Earth and they were 100 light years away from us, they would see the Earth 100 years ago, not now, because it takes time for the light to get to them. So the light that they're receiving now would have set off 100 years ago. So they wouldn't see us. They would see 1921, I guess the beginning of the Roaring Twenties and people kind of rebuilding after the First World War. But if you wanted to resolve an individual person, which is what we were talking about, you know, if you wanted to actually see flapper girls and speakeasies and Great Gatsby and all that sort of stuff, then the size of the telescope you need becomes bigger than the size of a planet almost in some cases. So yeah, James Webb can see back in time almost to the back of the beginning of the universe because the things it's looking at are, are so big. The reverse is true that when you're looking at something very small, like a planet or a person, then uh, then your telescope becomes very big. But it's it's good because otherwise it's quite creepy, isn't it? That, <laughs> well, that, that, that whatever you're doing today, I mean, assuming you're outside and not inside where you've got a roof. But let's say you're outside in a park somewhere, and that light is going off into space. That hit, the sun hits you, bounces off into space. Then in a hundred years, an alien a hundred light years away would be watching you doing whatever you're doing. Oh, I'm not bothered by that. I suppose you'd be, the good thing is you'd be dead by that point. So it's, matter. Yeah. it's not real time. But. The good thing is I'll be dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't care. If an alien's watching me, they can watch me do whatever they want. I, got, I, I feel less um, ashamed of, of things I'd be ashamed. It's like if, there's a, if a dog is in the room and you're like getting changed or whatever, you're not that bothered. That's true. People have That's sex true. in front of dogs. Some people can't have sex in front of dogs, I think. You know, it's just sort of looking at you, waiting to be fed and stuff. <laughs> So, you know, impatiently, and <laughs> you can't. That's really true. Con- yeah, I guess it's. And also, they they wouldn't be able. To, they wouldn't be able to because there's a hundred year delay. It's not like they could then decide to get on a rocket and come and I don't know, abduct you because they like you or whatever. Because not, you know, not without a wormhole that they've already built in the past. But so, what's the most exciting? Because I was, I get excited about these new telescopes. Because obviously, my layperson mind is going like, okay, they're going to get this telescope and they'll just see all these aliens everywhere. But then, even if they did, as you say, that could be thousands of years ago, and those aliens aren't even there anymore. So, 
like it, it's it's not as exciting for me. what's what's the best thing that you hope that we'll see so i think the best thing about it is that we can start to work out what atmospheres of alien planets are made of because we found that maybe 4000 alien planets in the last 25 years and we can get start to get an idea of what they're like. like we know their size for example and we know their distance from their star so we can set, start to say well okay here's an interesting planet because it's about the same size as the earth it's going around a star like the sun it's the same distance from the sun as we are, so it's not going to be too hot and it's not going to be too cold. But that only gets you so far because you're just guessing, right? You're saying, well, this is probably going to be a place where there's oxygen and water and life. But the James Webb will allow us to, to look into the atmospheres of these planets and actually measure the chemicals that are there. So then we can start to say, well, this planet has water and this planet has oxygen. And something like oxygen is a real, really interesting signature because it shouldn't be there. Oxygen's really reactive. And so when we, uh, on the Earth, we uh, the oxygen in the air reacts and disappears pretty quickly with other elements. So we shouldn't have this wedge of whatever it is, 21% oxygen in the atmosphere. It should be gone pretty quickly. Yet the fact that it's there all the time is because it's being replenished all the time, being replenished by trees and plants bacteria so if we see oxygen in a substantial amount on another planet there's a good chance that oxygen is coming from something biological there aren't that many things we know of non-biological that can kind of produce that kind of heady wedge of oxygen so that's that's what's going to be the real the real game changer i think i mean the first galaxies is interesting but it's the exoplanet stuff i think the the peering into atmospheres and people have even talked about um pollution as a kind of techno signature. If you were to stare at Earth's atmosphere, you know, you'd see signal, you'd find chemicals that we've been polluting the atmosphere with. And that starts to tell you, hang on, this isn't just life that's there. This is life that has technology and has the ability to to sort of make things and make make molecules and chemicals that really aren't natural. We wouldn't be able to do anything, would we, at that point? It would just be sort of it would be, I guess, front page news, the discovery of something like that, and then Okay, what can we do? Yeah, the trouble is there's always a, a, an element of doubt because there might be something on that planet that's producing the oxygen that's not life. Something that doesn't happen on, doesn't happen on the Earth because the, it's not the Earth, right? It's a different planet. But then you could start to have a, a target of like a short list of interesting planets. And if you wanted to, I'm not advocating you should, but you could start sending messages to those planets. You could start bombarding those planets with, uh, you know, with radio signals to see whether you get anything back. But that could be hundreds of years. Yeah, but then some of these, we're talking hundreds, but only hundreds of years. So these planets are are hundreds of light years away. So some of them are about 100. So you're looking at at about 200 years for maybe some sort of reply, which sounds a lot, right? But you have to remember that people built cathedrals or started building cathedrals knowing full well that they would never see the building finished in their lifetime, that it was something that was going to take a, a century or two centuries to finish. So I think we kind of forgotten some of these like old ways of, of we always want fast answers and things, which <laughs> would be great, but if the universe doesn't let us, then why don't we do it now and set things up for our future? But then there are whole, all sorts of issues with, do you want to advertise the earth to? Yeah. To I'll risk. take that so I'm risk. Not we should, I'm not saying we should <laughs> do that, but uh, I'm not sure like the people yeah. of, I don't know, uh, Tasmania would have wanted to to have advertised themselves to the West earlier than, than if you look what happened to them. 
we don't have, a, and again, it's, it's generalizing the earth, but we don't have a very good record of, of um, more technologically capable um, com communities moving into places. Yeah. It's a funny thought, though, isn't it? Like two or 300 years time, like all the newspapers or whatever it is, then going, oh, God, why did those idiots 300 years ago send those radio waves? They're coming after us now. What are we going to do? But I mean, I'll be dead and my grandchildren will be dead. So I think we can take the risk. Yeah, I guess unless there is this, I guess there's some move, isn't there, towards potentially changing the aging process so that the human lifespan becomes 150 yes. years rather than 75. Um, yeah. Which I've got some friends who've sort of written books and things about that. So Yeah, we had... Um, Andrew Steele. Yes, probably, he was on the podcast. I would say, yeah. yeah. And Andrew's great, yeah. Yeah, really good. But and I want to live forever. And then, yeah, then I'll be pissed off. Like, oh, what were we? Do? It's like we were drunk two hundred years ago. What were we thinking? Sending those radio signals? All... Although, then it might be like I've lived three hundred years now. But do you want to, uh, yeah, give a quick plug about you know the book and why you wrote it, what it's called, where they can get it. So the book is Time: Ten Things You Should Know. Um, it's ten short essays, um, fifteen hundred words per one looking at different aspects of time. So not just the time travel stuff, that's the kind of back half of the book. The front half of the book is more what we were talking about. You know, how do we establish a system of time? How do we work out how old things are from um, fossils to planets to the entire universe? So if you want to pull at some of these questions, then, uh, then that's the place to go, I think. Hmm. I loved it. I found it really great. And I'm a very slow reader, typically, and uh which is you know and I, I read this very quickly and i think i think that's a very positive thing i don't mean it's like oh it's it's you know you've done it an hour don't bother getting it i mean get it because it was just so entertaining it just kept me up i was up at night my, usually my eyes are getting tired and heavy whereas this i was like oh what and you know and it's it's yeah that great mix between being you know perfectly accessible for people like us so maybe if the podcast was a little bit difficult for some people i think if you read the book it's much easier to understand the trouble with time is that it's just so whenever you hear these things for the first time it's always going to jar and it's not that you you haven't understood it or that that hasn't been explained properly i've seen it so many times giving public talks and about time that that it just rocks our preconceptions to such a degree it takes uh, you know, to hear these ideas a couple of times to maybe read about it also as well as hearing it and then to think it over and it, it starts to kind of make more sense. So it's, yeah, if you, if you are struggling with these ideas, it, everyone does because it is so, sort of shifts the goalpost so much as to what we're used to thinking. But it's even those basic questions, like the ones, ones we were asking before, like where does tomorrow come from? and Where does yesterday go? You just start pulling at that thread no one stops to ask that. I don't think anyone ever stops to ask those questions. I never thought of that. You know why? Because it seems, and I think maybe people listening will think this as well, that it seems like a, you know, drunk or on marijuana conversation when you're 18 or 19. And it feels like, well, come on, a scientist wouldn't think that way. So it's quite refreshing to hear from you, who are, you actually know the science, that that is a reasonable thing to say. Where does tomorrow go? And where does the, where does yesterday go? Yeah, it sounds like that. But, but also it's about, a big part of science is challenging your preconceptions. If you if you think something is an established rule, you can't just assume that. You've got to test it. So that's what that's what a scientist will do, right? They'll, have, they'll take a question and they'll pull at it, and then they'll try and come up with some way of answering answering the question. But all the, all of those like drunk that's what attracted me to time so much and to write about it in, in, in a book was that you know, these are questions that 
really fundamental questions that you probably do ask when you've had a few too many. But in some ways, that's the that's the, the way to go because then you can start to break down those preconceptions. Okay, so whose mind was blown? I was planning to do lots of little time jokes, but I'm actually, you know what? I'm not going to do them. I know you're still thinking, okay, I'm going to wait for him to do a joke. I'm not doing... Even now, I'm tempted to, but I'm not going to make one. So I'm just not doing it. Right, some of you knew about that stuff anyway, but it's still a trip to hear about it, I think. Especially the stuff about our dead loved ones still being out there in space-time. And Colin finally being in the same bit of space-time as his child. Get his book, Time, in all the normal places. A link is in the show notes. And listen to the next 20 minutes of this chat on patreon.com slash andrewgold or the VIP area of Apple Podcasts on On the Edge with Andrew Gold. You can also get the video bonus episodes on YouTube by joining that channel. You join up and it's the same thing. You get the extra bonus video form. Either way, do sign up so you can complete this this episode, the final 20 minutes of it. At the time of writing, I now have 69 patrons on Patreon, 28 Apple VIP members, and two YouTube members. And the astute among you will have worked out that that is 99 people who are paying for the bonus parts and early access of this podcast. So I look forward to number 100. Thank you so much to the 99 of you who have signed up so far. In fact, thank you so much in particular to my newest patrons. Uh, Unfortunately, I can't see the ones on Apple who sign up, but I thank you anyway. I can't see your information. Uh, But the new patrons include Meredith Rodriguez, who had me as a guest on her podcast, The Joy of Challenge, the lovely Charlie Dumont, who I speak to on Twitter from time to time, Daniel F., who doubled his former pledge. So thank you very much, Daniel. It's always a pleasure talking to you as well on Twitter. Zach Travis in Australia just signed up to an annual membership. Zach's a great friend of mine who lived in the same building in Argentina with me. And one time he saw I had nothing to do on my birthday, which is very sad, but it's because everybody was at work. So he took me to the Toilet Museum of Buenos Aires as a treat. So thank you, Zach, for that beautiful memory and for signing up. And just the other day, somebody signed up with just the initial T. And then Sonia C. I haven't had the chance to ask her about anonymity, but thank you, Sonia. Uh, That's why I haven't said your last name. And T, thank you as well. I appreciate every one of you. Uh, And it's a real thrill every time I see, like, someone has signed up. Like, yes, come on. What What a day I'm having. As for reviews, please keep leaving them. Anna in Scotland, there's quite, by the way, there's quite a few of these reviews and, and people signing up because for the last few weeks I was moving around, so I recorded a lot of these in advance. So these are from the last few weeks, I suppose. And by I suppose, I mean I mean they are. Um, Anna in Scotland gave five stars on Apple and said, new favourite podcast, fantastic range of guests and topics. I haven't done the Scottish accent in a while, have I? I'm sorry, Anna, you might not sound like that at all, but I just... It's my one thing. I wish I was good at accents and I'm not. Fantastic range of guests and topics, which keeps me thoroughly thoroughly entertained at work every night. That's gone horrible. So thanks for that. This is her. I'm still doing her voice. So thanks for keeping in. Uh, there's a smiley face. Andrew seems a lovely guy and I wish him all the best with the podcast and for the future. Love from Scotland. Anna. X's little kiss there. Thank you, Anna. Um, and and Scotland's a beautiful place. It's, it's one of the most... You know what? I went to Edinburgh and... I was blown away. I really, really... And I've been to, like, loads of places that are supposed to be nice and I've been massively let down. Um, looking at you, Italy. Italy annoyed me because they didn't have good veggie food um, and it was too hot. But Edinburgh, oh, my word. And then we went up to Inverness. 
what a country. Friendly people as well. Lovely place. Um, Darcy Jennings on CastBox wrote, Brilliant, thought-provoking podcast. Andrew is a fantastic host. Thank you, Darcy. Uh, Always asking interesting questions in an open and respectful manner, actually giving his great mix of guests time to talk without constantly interrupting. Uh, Very easy to listen to and well done. Would definitely recommend. Great work. Thumbs up, heart emoji, and then peace sign emoji. That is how much Darcy liked it. Thanks, Darcy Jennings. And ScandyGirl92 gave five stars on Apple and wrote, Andrew's a true natural. His interview style is compelling and down-to-earth all at the same time. He's a great example of what a good interviewer should be. Someone give him a Netflix show. And if you're wondering, I did not pay ScandyGirl92 to say all those nice things and suggest to Netflix that they give me a show. But if anyone at Netflix or anywhere is listening, do please give me a show. Thank you to all of you. Your beautiful comments brighten up my day no end. Next week, I'm not sure yet who it'll be, but it might be Julian Baggini, who is a philosopher who I met in Bristol and has written loads of books, um, and he'd be here to give us advice on how to be happy and go about our lives the best ways we can. Uh, I do intend, by the way, to get more cult survivors and out-there-on-the-edge guests too uh, in the coming weeks, because uh, I know that's what a lot of you guys sign up for, and then I put some of these academics and intellectuals and, and, and thought leaders on, which is all nice, isn't it? It's sort of the window dressing, but you want the, you want the edgy people. So I'm going to have a look around for some of that. Uh, so watch this space. And see you next week.